Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Multhrop, Chief Executive here, also a proud member. And I'm pleased to introduce our forum today, a conversation at the intersection of philanthropy and democracy, featuring Anand Girdardas, author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, in conversation with Teleanje Thomas, director of the Foundation Center Midwest. We are living in a time that celebrates and elevates wealthy philanthropists. You turn on the news and you'll hear about a tech giant pledging to use his or her own personal wealth to create, well, it's really mostly his personal wealth, to create radical social change. In fact, dozens of the world's billionaires, including Bill and Melinda Gates, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, and others, have signed the Giving Pledge, promising to give away at least half of their wealth to solve social problems. Their causes vary, everything from education reform to alleviating poverty to improving global health and all come with the promise to change the world. For the most part, the reaction to these individuals and their philanthropic pursuits has been exceptionally positive. We all want to alleviate poverty and inequality, right? But should we abdicate control over what social problems need to be solved and how to solve them to a small circle of philanthropists? This is the core question that Cleveland native and former New York Times columnist and correspondent Anand Girdardis explores in his book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. His book challenges the notion that outsourcing the improvement of the human condition to the wealthy and powerful is good for society and democracy. Mr. Girdardus was raised here in Cleveland, also in Paris, France, the Cleveland of France, and in Maryland, <laughs> and educated at the University of Michigan, Oxford University, and Harvard University. He worked briefly as a consultant for McKinsey and Company in Mumbai, before becoming a journalist in 2005. In addition to being a writer and author, he's also an on-air political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, a visiting scholar at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at NYU, and a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. Mr. Girdardis will be in conversation with Teleanje Thomas. Ms. Thomas joined the Foundation Center as Director of the Midwest in 2016. In this position, she provides leadership for deepening the organization's impact in 13 Midwestern states while enhancing the organization's value proposition to the Cleveland community where she is based. She has 15 years of experience in healthcare, public health, human services, and philanthropy, and received her bachelor's of business management and entrepreneurial studies from Case Western Reserve University. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Anand Girdardis and Teleanje Thomas. So good afternoon, everyone, and thank you, Dan, for that introduction. And more importantly, welcome, Anand. Welcome back home. For a, great to be home. It is. Any shout out to Shaker Heights? You know, we rep our neighborhoods. So look, I my when I was growing up, my father would refer to my sister and I as the original Cleveland Indians, um, <laughs> and so there's always. Um, a great sweetness in reliving that terrible dad joke 
And, yeah. Yeah. And, in, yeah. and now I'm a dad myself, so I, I'm starting to make them. Um, and, and in being home. Great, great. Well, we're delighted to have you. And um, we have some time with you this afternoon to have a conversation. You've been busy. You've been all over the country. Uh, and you've been uh, stirring up a little bit of interesting uh, discussions. So um, I kind of want to get right into one of the core, what I think takeaways are in the book. And really, it's this conversation about brokenness of the system. Um, and I think in some aspects, you've used the metaphor um, of America as a machine, and that it's broken. And in part, it's broken because it has not uh, produced shared progress and prosperity. And we'll get into wealth gap and things of that later. But I'm curious, um, can you help us understand how this book came to be? So kid born in Shaker, goes off into the world, has all of these very interesting experiences. And now the author that sits in front of us. Yeah, so this is my third book. Mm -hmm. um, and like great nights out, mm -hmm. um, books leave a hangover. <laughs> and <laughs> Hashtag. With each of my books, there's been, you kind of come on to things maybe to, in the writing. I mean, I'm a reporter, so you report mm -hmm. things and you write them. And you maybe think some thoughts or figure some, some things out in the writing mm -hmm. that are kind of not for that book. Sure but that are part of the discovery. And often I have found, at least three times, that some of that unfinished business it becomes a seed for the next one. So my first book was about India and mm -hmm. um, what John Stewart very aptly summarized as, the American dream is live and well, but only in India. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> having written about that and kind of taken John Stewart's joke very seriously, sure. I came back and my second book was about what had happened to the American dream mm -hmm here and the bifurcation of the American dream yeah. and a hate crime. Um, that book called The True American took me into a lot of places um, in this country, particularly in Texas, suburbs, exurbs, white communities mm -hmm. that were basically eviscerated um, not, and not coming back. Meth, yep. inequality, no jobs, every man basically being in deep existential sure. trouble not knowing how to be a man in the new world. And these were white communities that were not supposed to be like this in our national narrative. And so a lot of that made it into that book. But there was some unfinished business of understanding how that came to be. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that's very interesting with writers and with journalists is when we write about inequality and poverty, we overwhelmingly tend to write about those topics from the vantage point of the bottom. Mm -hmm. For a couple reasons. One, it has that, you know, there's a poverty porn quality sure. to writing. Describing a slum, sure. describing a really dangerous neighborhood, it makes for better copy. Right. Sensationalized. But number two, there's an access issue. The thing is, I've reported around the world, poor people are very nice. They're very happy to let you into their lives, mm -hmm. share their stories. They feel people don't tell their stories, and they're happy to have you tell them. Mm -hmm. That's great. But I have come to realize through my work having participated in a lot of that work in India, over here, that writing about inequality by focusing on poor people is like writing about this building uh, by focusing on the people who happen to be in the room right now. You need to talk to the architects. Right. You need to talk to the people who created the building that allowed that situation to be. Rich people are the architects of a world in which people are poor and there's extreme inequality. And no one ever writes about rich people when they're writing about inequality. 
And so that was part of the hangover of the second mm -hmm. book, mm -hmm. which leads us to this one. I wanted to understand how we came to live in a country that at one level, um, as Dan indicated, has all these indicators of rich people being very, very worried for those left behind. The giving pledge, yep. um, $410 billion given away philanthropically in this country last year or the year before, mm -hmm. approaching the level of federal non-military discretionary spending. Right. We almost have this other fourth branch of government that's just rich people writing checks and putting their names on things. Um, it's not just super rich people. You go to college campuses today, elite campuses around this country, and every young person seems to have a social enterprise idea involving recycled poop, coffee, tote bags, and Rwanda. Um, everybody wants to save Rwanda even though it doesn't need them. Um, and you have product everywhere, certified by Bono and determined to yeah. help poor people. So you have all this elite helpfulness, and yet the reality, which we know in Ohio very well, is that this has been a punishing few decades mm -hmm. if you happen to be a regular person. Sure. Um, the worst time to be a working class, middle class American in 100 years. Um, the reality that basically 40 years of economic growth has bypassed the bottom half of this country on average. The idea that social mobility, which is maybe the national creed of this country, the idea that if we all believe one thing, people on the right and left believe one thing, is that this is and ought to be a country where where you end up is a product of how hard you work, what you do. That's probably something you can get 90% of Americans to say, yes, that's us too, which there are not many things like that. Well, it turns out to be the least true. Unfortunately, the thing that you could get the most people to agree is us is the least true of us right. in the rich world. Um, the thing that we think is our thing is actually the thing we are the least thingy at. Um, <laughs> And, and so I started to become interested mm -hmm. in how it is that all these elites, whether it's co the college kids all the way up to the billionaires, sure. helping sits alongside the reality of that broken system, right. the broken progress machine. I define a successful society as a progress machine. You can envision a machine in the center of this room and into one side of the machine, the input, is innovation, is new stuff. Mm -hmm. But innovation doesn't have a bias to do X, Y, or Z. You, got, you just stuff it in. You make Facebook, that could be a dating app, that could be a democracy app, it could be an evil monopoly that lets Russians conquer our electoral space. It could be anything. That's what the machine's for. The machine decides what you get out on the other side. And what you're supposed to get out on the other side is progress, mm -hmm. which is most people's lives getting better, our institutions getting better. That machine in the center of the room is what's broken. We have innovation. Does anybody think there hasn't been enough new stuff in America over the last 40 years? By the way, there are many countries. I think Spain has not had enough innovation over the last right. 40 years. Right. I think France has not had enough innovation over the last 40 mm -hmm. years. There are country, countries with a different problem than we have, which is generalized decline. I don't think you can say that's our situation. Right. How many of the top 100 universities do we have? 90? How many of the biggest companies do we have? 90%? Like, mm -hmm. So our problem is we're jamming all this new stuff and good stuff into the machine, and betterment of every, every person in this country's life does not happen. Um, and so I decided to go on a reporting journey, because I'm a reporter. Sure. Um, my opinions come at the end of reporting, at least my public ones. 
And I decided to go on a reporting journey among these very rich and powerful people who were trying to help to see what they were up to and to try to understand how they continue to give in ways that don't just fail to change the dynamics that I'm describing, but actually, perhaps, shore up the very broken system mm -hmm. that benefits them and shuts sure. everybody else out. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing uh, the root of how this came to be. And um, you, you touched on a number of things that I kind of want to tease out a little bit more in the time that we have. So through your reporting journey, um, you engaged with a number of folks, Facebook, Asana, I think was mentioned, Uber, um, Google, Airbnb. You went to some of the most prestigious campuses, talked with students um, who were trying to find their way in the world and you know what were they going to do. Um, and you were bold enough to not only name those enterprises or those businesses, but also talk about kind of this mindset that was being developed around the business approach is really what um, is at the core of solutions to society today. Um, my takeaway is that there's real skepticism around that. There's real danger around that. And to your point, we've kind of produced this fourth um, strand of, of government that really is just very wealthy people writing checks. So go a little deeper around the skepticism. Are we really outsourcing social change to the wealthy? Um, and what might be the cautionary tale in that? At, so at the heart of this book, you, the most skeptical question you could ask about me and my ideas is, what could be wrong with rich people trying to help? Yeah, they're not solving everything. Yeah, there's big issues. But like, what's wrong with at least trying to do something? Mm -hmm. And my book is not saying at least trying to do something is, should be banned. But my book is trying to make a case that at least trying to do something is often in addition to that doing something, feeding that person, putting a roof over that person's head, sheltering someone, it is also abetting mm -hmm. a problem on a much vaster scale. Um, so let me explain how I think that works. There's a couple things. First of all, and the most easy case that we'd all understand, is a lot of the folks who cause our social problems show up wearing philanthropic hats as the cleanup crew mm -hmm. for the problems that we still remember they caused. Okay, So you all remember the foreclosure crisis in this city. We know it very well. We know the banks, I mean, there's now been investigations. They didn't stop them, but they investigated them afterwards. Mm -hmm. J.P. Morgan Chase, $16 billion fine or $13 billion. City, uh, uh, city paid, uh, Goldman Sachs paid a $5 billion fine. We, we know the names, we know where they are, mm -hmm. we know the addresses. We know who, who did it. You all know people right. who maybe never recovered from that or who took years to recover from that, right? So we know who did it. Now, all of those banks are back doing some philanthropy, doing some CSR. J.P. Morgan Chase, so kind, just announced <laughs> a 500 million, unfortunately million with an M, which is not the level of destruction they caused, which is with a B. Um, a $500 million urban revitalization fund. It makes me almost cry, but not. Um, and I'm sure Cleveland is one of the cities that's going to be eligible for this kind of largesse. But you know what would have been so much better for revitalizing Cleveland and other cities like it? Not killing it. <laughs> not causing a financial crisis, 
paying a $16 billion fine because you committed fraud and then doling out these little chips. So, so the easiest case where you say doing a little good, what, it, what that kind of do, mm -hmm. it, that those are pap modern papal indulgences. You sin, you profit from your sin, you hurt people, and you sprinkle a little bit of uh, things that kind of change your reputation. And the reality is we're all bored, we're, we're all busy and bored and busy with our aging parents and busy with our children, and we don't have time to have 88 facts in our head about J.P. Morgan Chase. Mm -hmm. We have time for like one or two facts about every institution, unless it's like what you do for a living. Mm -hmm. And so that philanthropy works because in our minds it's like, yeah, J.P. Morgan Chase, the urban revitalization company. That's how that works. Um, more complicated example is you have folks who create social problems through the kind of public policies they fight for and then present themselves as deliverance mm -hmm. when those public policies create social problems. David Rubenstein, wonderful example, co-founder of the Carlyle Group. Now you may know him as a because you're busy people, a patriotic philanthropist. How many of you have heard that term, patriotic philanthropy? Here's what that means. He buys documents. He's like the sugar daddy to the United States government. <laughs> he buys documents the US government evidently can't afford for itself. We, you know, we, we can afford to like, spend all these years in Iraq. I think we're still there. Um, but we can't afford the Magna Carta. So he like, buys the Magna Carta at an auction and then we'll give it to America. Obama wanted some, some art in his, or document in his uh, Oval Office. He, I think he bought it, gave it to Obama. Um, the Washington Monument cracked in an earthquake in 2011, right down the middle, which is the greatest metaphor that Mother Nature has ever done on the United <laughs> States. Um, the repair cost would have been a lot for you and me not that big for the United States government, $15 million, but actually, given the way our budget system works, it was too much. So the US government, representing 325 million people, put forward $7.5 million, and, and, uh, and, and David Rubenstein, $7.5 million. So nice, mm -hmm. so nice. You guys waiting for the other shoe? <laughs> so David Rubenstein is one of the people who has been part of benefiting from, fighting for, something called the carried interest loophole. You all know what that is? Mm -mm. Carried interest loophole allows investors okay. to have their income taxed as investment income under basically capital gains kinds of laws instead of income. Now a lot of these people make $500 million a year or a billion dollars a year salary, like income. Now you can classify it however you want as an accountant. But this is not wealth, this is income. income. There are now many people in American life who make hundreds of millions of dollars, billion dollars income. Well, they lobbied to have that tax at a low, 15, 17, that kind, of, that kind of rate. Famously, Warren Buffett talked about how he is taxed at a lower rate than his secretary. That's that issue. David Rubens is one of the people who's benefited from that, pushed for that, his firm pushed for it, his industry, private equity pushed for it. That loophole, cost the United States $18 billion a year, okay? Which is enough to fix the full Washington Monument, not just half of it, 12,000 times per year. So if we had 12,000 earthquakes per year and it split the exact same way, if we just didn't have that loophole, we could repair it, just us, right. as citizens, 
12,000 times a year. And so that, and the last part of the, that story, then I want to explain the fullness of it, is you know, David then goes around the Aspen Institute, Aspen Ideas, but talking about patriotic philanthropy, the, the obligation to give back. He says in 60 Minutes, the government just doesn't have the money it used to have. Rich people need to step up. That's, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> and, and then finally, he kind of becomes, in the final loop of this, what's called these days, and a, a term I try to destroy in this book, and I hope none of you will ever use again, a thought leader. Mm. A thought leader. <laughs> a thought leader is like, it's like a thinker who, but not. Um, a lot and of it, us have to change our uh, Twitter. Please, uh, yeah, remove <laughs> it from your Twitter bio immediately. Because a thought leader is a thinker who doesn't threaten winners. It's like a James mm -hmm. Baldwin who tells white people they're going to be fine, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Just James Bald. Yeah. Um, um, it's like a Ta-Nehisi Coates who's like actually all about how the American yeah. dream is amazing. Um, and, and so David Rubenstein's become a thought leader, mm -hmm. um, like a thinker for rich people. And I have seen, you know, the Aspen Institute, others, he will give, I think he bought a copy of the 13th Amendment, because that's what these people do when they have all this money they stole from the government, um, <laughs> emancipation document. Um, and he will give lectures on the 13th Amendment and what it means to emancipate at the Aspen Institute, and so he becomes seen as a thinker. So there are probably like young people in this country who only know David Rubenstein for, isn't he that 13th Amendment lecturer guy? Maybe. Right, this is what I call emansplaining, um, when you give lectures on the Emancipation, emancipation Amendment. Um, and so now if we just take that full loop, I think it stands in for how so much of America works today. Mm -hmm. First, you create a business that makes a lot of money, but actually the business is sort of predicated mm. on a tax loophole that you fight for in public policy, right? The private equity at a 30, 40% normal mm -hmm. tax rate would simply not be the industry it is. Mm -hmm. It is dependent on that. A lot of what private equity does is, is basically buy out companies, lever them up with huge amounts of mm -hmm. debt, which create huge monthly bills for them to service. The only way for that company to then meet that debt obligation is to cut pensions and wages. That sounds familiar here in Ohio? Yep. You know, suddenly you work for 40 years for a pension, you're like, actually, that's not available. That's often, because right. of, of a place like the Carlisle Group took it over, okay? Then you use that extra money you got to buy stuff for the US government, mm -hmm. which doesn't have money because you made it not have money. You donate it, you get mm -hmm. attention, and then you emansplain um, the Emancipation Amendment and you become, in the public mind, a patriotic philanthropist and a thought leader. This is the loop right. of defrauding and then, and then becoming a savior. And I'm gonna say one last thing about that, which is virtually every stage of the loop that I described is only possible because we let it be possible. Mm -hmm. That loop I described does not happen in Europe in general, and you know why? because people don't buy into the things that they need to buy into for that loop to be possible. They don't care that guys like him want a really low tax rate. They tax him the way they want to tax mm -hmm. people like that. They don't listen to the tax advice right. from people who'd benefit from lower taxes. That's not the best people to get public right. tax advice from. Um, they also regulate labor properly, so you sure. cannot buy a company and say bye-bye to a pension. That's, not how pen that's the opposite of what a pension is. 
So you can't do that in Europe. Then they don't, you know, let people, no one sees these people as like thought leaders and change agents in Europe. So no one invites them to conferences to like, they, they have billionaires in Europe, but no one think, treats them as thinkers. So the point I want to make there is we passively <laughs> enable a Mark Zuckerberg to be a change agent. Mark Zuckerberg's an oligarch. Mark Zuckerberg is building a fortune based on the idea of hopefully addicting these young people here for the rest of their lives to products so they can't focus on what they mm -hmm. want to focus on, what they should focus on, and then is going to claim to use the dollars that he made addicting them to like cure all, all the diseases things. instead of strengthen the government institutions that are actually supposed to do that. Um, a lot of this happens because we let it happen. And I wrote this book to give us a language mm -hmm. to stop believing sure. their hype and start believing in the old-fashioned way of making change, which is through democracy. Great. So I want to build off of that, and we're getting close on time. Yes. Some snaps in the room. Um, so I'm a kind of rapid fire, um, but I do want to localize the conversation a bit. Of course, you're, uh, you were born here in Shaker. Um, there's a lot of general hometown pride, and a lot of people in this room uh, wake up every day trying to help solve problems that we're facing. Um, to borrow from Jay-Z, we have 99 problems, and I would say inequality is number one for us. And so with that, um, whether we're talking education, lead abatement, affordable housing, transportation, um, a lot of these hills feel really, really hard to climb. Um, and in the context of reduced resources coming out of government, this shift to you know public marketplace solutions, um, just this exacerbated inequality gap um, and you know philanthropy right as part of the dynamic in that um, injustice is real is pervasive um, but can we get to a place where we're no longer looking to others um, who have the credibility surely based on their bank account um, to be the saviors can we get to a place where power comes back to the people where we're upholding government, where we're investing in institutions and organizations. What's your perspective on that? What yeah, does it look I mean, like? I think it's. I was just hearing from a, an old friend of mine as well as you mm, yeah. about this notion that you have a big lead problem sure, in the east side of the city, yep. and that there's not much of a government program to deal with it, or dollars available to deal with it. But poor people can apply for philanthropic grants to kind of help. To help. Well, that's kind of at the heart of what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. At one level, you say, oh, that's so nice. At another, another level, you say, that's barbarism. It is barbarism that that is not, if, we, if that is not something we can agree to do as a public, right. democratically, particularly with the interests of children involved who do not vote and whose lives can be destroyed by that lead, if that's not something we can agree in 2018 is a job of the public, what is the point of having a public? Right. What is the point of having any government? What, like, what is it for? Mm -hmm. Nation building in Iraq? And so, but the question you ask then is, okay, do you just pull up the philanthropic money and wait? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a fair answer mm -hmm. either. So in my view, the philanthropic money on an issue like that is a Band-Aid on a cancer. On the other hand, there's some bleeding. Mm -hmm. Do you not put the Band-Aid and just wait for the cancer to be solved? Probably not. So 
one of the things, I think these are the hard cases to think about. What I talk to people about is if you are one of those, well, if you work in public service or in the civic sphere, fight like hell to create the conditions for that to be solved publicly. Mm-hmm. File lawsuits, organize, et cetera, et cetera. It, but if you are in philanthropy, there are ways to give on an issue like that that keeps everything as it is and just helps some people. And it sounds to me like this giving is sort of in that vein. There are other ways to give that, that does put a bandit on the issue, that addresses it, the immediate bleeding, but also simultaneously pushes for deeper, more systemic mm-hmm. change. And if you're a privileged person, I think it's important to not just support the $500 mm-hmm. grants, but to somehow tie that. If you receive a grant, you go to meetings. And those meetings you actually organize and you meet people, right? There's a way to use that kind of giving to actually solve the underlying systemic mm-hmm. issue. For example, turn everybody who receives that grant into a voting block mm-hmm. that can't be ignored next time you have an election. Right? That, that's what I mean by pushing in a kind of more systemic direction. And I say to rich people, if, you, if you're going to give, there are ways to give that are essentially self-preservational and preservational of the system that you mm-hmm. stand on top of that shuts people out. And there are other ways of giving that actually put yourself at risk that I think are the right way to give. Mm. And I, I tell people they should shift from giving back, just giving a little back, to giving up. Mm. Right? Very actually powerful. putting your own power at risk. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Um, if this city were to actually deal with that lead issue, mm-hmm. it would cost rich people more mm-hmm. in taxes. Um, and if, 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 if it's great for Jeff Bezos to create a billion dollars worth of Montessori schools where kids are the customers, like mm-hmm. at Amazon, as he put it which I guess means you can return your education after two weeks. Um, <laughs> it would be better for Jeff Bezos to fund a billion dollars or 10 for the future of collective bargaining mm-hmm. and the future of unions, reinventing them, figuring out what they can be. That would put his privilege at risk. Mm-hmm. That would make his stock value go down, mm-hmm. but it would make America better. Uh, and the second shift is from crowding government out mm-hmm. to crowding government in. A lot of people who've made fortunes in the last 30, 40 years didn't make them through massive companies like Kodak. They sure. made them through more entrepreneurial things. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they have the fantasy of the soloist. And they love creating things of their own. Mark Zuckerberg, the, the primary school they're creating is their own little thing. Mm-hmm. No involvement, really, with the public system. They're, 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 they're getting rid of these diseases. You know, it's his own initiative to get rid of the diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be more interesting would be to think about philanthropy the way some people did 100 years ago, which is philanthropy, to use modern terms, as a startup incubator for government action. Mm-hmm. Philanthropy as a doing an activity that the government should be doing, mm-hmm. wasn't doing, and using your little private giving to shame the government mm-hmm. into doing what you should not have to do. But not a lot of philanthropists think about it that way. They, they like creating their own thing. They put their name on it. They keep it separate. Crowding government in means shifting Mm -hmm. to thinking about philanthropy as a shaming mechanism to get the government to act in ways that it should have been acting all along. Well, we are almost at that time. Um, I want to get this last question in. You in part talked about um, the messaging uh, that uh, gets signaled to our young people, and we have uh, about three tables, I think, in the room of young people from various schools. Which I love. Yeah, which is awesome. And one of the things that struck me in the book, this is actually not my last question, so I'm going to combine these, um, was when you were talking to the, the one young student at Georgetown, 
and again, it's kind of like this marketplace communication where you can do good, you can do well, and solutions can be derived all in the, in the private marketplace. But you had also made this statement along the fact that young people no longer look for an MLK or a Cesar Chavez. So I think you touched on it a little bit in, in your last comments, but just, again, this recognition that um, private shouldn't necessarily overshadow what can be done through a democratic process in the public good. So I just want to punctuate that for our young folks here. Um, so my last question, uh, I've heard in a number of your interviews, uh, you've made the statement that uh, generosity should not be a substitute for justice. Um, so I would just love for you to build on that comment and kind of wrap things up for us today with that point. Yeah, let me deal with both. You okay. know, so I want to say okay. directly to the young people, um, America has failed you in many ways because you are actually the first generation in the history of this country um, for whom you know, your, your parents' generation has basically not left you a better America than the one they found. It's the first time this has happened. Um, this is the first time that your income prospects, home ownership, it's, like, it's always gotten better in America, except for this generation. So first of all, I'm sorry and we're sorry. Um, second of all, we're not going to be the old people are not going to be the ones to fix this. Um, and it can be fixed. But one of the things they've done in addition to starving young people of opportunity in this generation, they did a second thing which you may be less aware of, which I want to make you aware of, which is that they have tried to steal from you the story about how change is made. We know how change is made. We know how women got to vote. It was marching and organizing and threatening their husbands. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, um, we know how African Americans got civil rights. That's very documented history. And it was not by rich people throwing things from the mountaintop. Um, we know how immigration laws were changed so that you didn't have to, you know, be the color of snow to come to this country. Um, and none of that was achieved through the powerful throwing scraps. Mm -hmm. It was achieved through people building movements, knowing each other over long periods of time in those movements, organizing, fighting, and insisting on not just having things given, but actually taking power. And in addition to starving young people of opportunity today, to right now, America's elites have tried to convince you young people that the best way to make change is to log into their apps, to go work for a startup, to learn business, because that's how really the world has changed these days. And it is going to be so important that you all read your history and that you actually, whatever changes, whatever whatever movements in history inspire you, learn how they were actually made. Learn the details of how we didn't have that thing and then we did. Because no one is telling you that story today because they don't want you to know that story. And you're going to have to build real movements over the course of your lifetime to reverse the direction of this country. Tweeting and poking and snapping are not movements. right? If you don't know the names of someone's 
family, you're not in a movement with them. People in the civil rights movement knew each other for years, had each other's backs. When one of them went to jail, they loved the other one enough to go make sure they were okay. We don't have that anymore. I often say to people, I'm on all these Democratic Party mailing lists in Brooklyn, which is a hotbed of Democratic Party activism and anti-Trump feeling. I have not been invited to a single physical gathering in my neighborhood in the last two years. Hey, the Kavanaugh hearings are going on. It's kind of traumatic for people. Let's have a drum circle in Fort Greene Park. Hey, you know, this Muslim ban must got you stressed out. Let's come have a celebration of Muslim culture. Mm -hmm. Nope. Hey, Barack Obama, can I have $5 for the DNC? Hey, we, we, don't, we live in a time where there are no movements. I just want to say to you, like, build movements. The most threatening and amazing thing you can do in your lives is build movements with each other and start now. Um, and just to wrap it up, I think if you're able to do that, and if we are all, it's not just young people, if we're all able to reclaim that heritage of how change was actually made in this country, we will be able to do better than generosity. Because generosity is what happens in a bad system that people feel guilty about ascending or standing on top of and throwing coins down. Mm. Uh, justice is what happens when the people in the bottom and the middle and all around that system actually organize and fight to make a better system and society for everybody. Um, and the one hope I have is that we have in this president the most flamboyant possible discreditor of the notion that billionaires will save us. Um, and it may not have been obvious before to many of us that billionaires we're not gonna save us. Mm -hmm. But I don't think any of us can now doubt that the people who cause the problem saying they're the solution, mm -hmm. that the people who promise to fight for the least of us while enriching themselves, that the people who have essentially profited from the loopholes of a system claiming they're the best tenders of that system. I could not have hoped for a greater shatterer of our billionaire savior delusion than President Donald J. Trump. So thank you. All right, so we're gonna move into the Q&A with the audience. Uh, again, I want to remind you that you are listening to a, form, a forum with Amin Gerdadis. And he is the author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. I'm Teleon J. Thomas, Director of Foundation Center Midwest. And as I said, we're about to move directly into Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining us via our radio broadcast or live stream. If you would like to tweet a question, you can do so at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are the marketing and outreach coordinator, Julia Wong. I'm sorry, Wang. And the court, um, content coordinator, coordinator Bliss Davis. Um, so let's get the first question. 
I imagine you delve deeper into this in your book, but I would like to hear it from you while I have the opportunity. How do we de-glorify the notion of the thought leader in America? That's a great question. How do we de-glorify? I like that line. That kid's going to be a writer. Um, you know, part of what has happened that's allowed the thought leader to rise is shriveling support for actual thinkers, actual artists, actual people challenging power. Okay, so if you look at and that, that, that you, know, you know, in Ohio with budget cuts, first of all, that starts with just education, right? When education is cut, it's always the arts classes mm -hmm. that are cut, mm -hmm. that creative writing thing, it's class size. It's a lot of the things that specifically limit the nurturing of creative people, particularly creative people who don't come from means. So we do it that way. Then newsrooms, which is a kind of one job that allows the nurturing of writers. It's how I came up. They're about half the size they were 20 years ago, gutted, right? In a lot of smaller communities, it's in fact because private equity and hedge fund people have taken them over and gutted them. Um, then you got academia, where full-time kind of tenured track jobs are way down, because no money. Um, not at Harvard and Yale, but like everywhere else. And every, everyone's an adjunct. The greatest example of this happened recently when a woman won the Nobel Prize in physics before she was promoted to full professor. Okay? So she had more easily ascended the Nobel Prize, number one physicist on earth, before she could get tenure in her physics department. Um, and a third source of support for thinkers is, is books and advances. And basically, we have now a monopolistic company. Um, hi, Amazon. Thanks for selling my book. That <laughs> controls the book market. Um, all the other bookstores are in decline. A lot of places don't even have physical stores around them anymore. And so that's been a big source of support for thinkers in the past that's, that's now down. And so you add all that up, the traditional means of making a life as an independent thinker, a full-time writer, full-time thinker, that's been gutted. They're just very, I mean, I know very few people who actually are able to do that full-time. I'm lucky enough to be able to do that. Um, and what has taken, what has picked up the slack? The billionaires of the world love to be educated. So they go to Aspen Ideas Festival, TED Talks, it's not 10 grand a ticket, 10 grand to sit and hear ideas. But what happens is, when you have all these forms of intellectual patronage drying up, and then you got these new, essentially, plutocrat forums um, and corporate lectures and things like that well up, what happens is a lot of these thinkers figure out that if you want to keep being invited on that circuit, you got to change your diagnoses a little bit, right? Um, so better to talk about lean in, hmm. <laughs> not talk about maternity leave or social policy that would actually empower women, because that'd be expensive for the people in the room, right? Um, just tell women to make sexism their problem. Um, that's much cheaper. Um, and, and on education, let's not talk about equal public school funding or the fact that Akron, I think, has $5,000 a year budget. Mm -hmm. There's another county in Cleveland that has $31,000. Let's not talk about fixing that, because that would, that would not be nice for the people who attend these conferences. Let's talk about creating one charter school. We put your name on it, serve on the board, and help three black kids go to Yale, as one of my characters talks about in the book. And you brag mm -hmm. to your friends that you did that, and you feel great. Um, 
So what happens is a lot of those thinkers are rewarded into thought leadership. And people who are really pungent thinkers get sidelined. I've seen that happen. Um, and that's how it happens. Uh, how, to, how to deglorify it? By actually, I mean, one way is to increase all those sources of funding I talked about. That's actually a place where I think philanthropy mm -hmm. could be good and be system breaking, um, supporting independent thinking, giving to things like ProPublica, giving to things that actually allow thinkers with no strings attached to think whatever they think. Um, and as, a, as consumers, like subscribe to newspapers. You know, if you all read like only free things from Facebook, like you're gonna get what you click for, you know? And like subscribe to newspapers, read books. I mean, like when I get on airplanes, and you know people have a little bit of money because they bought an airplane ticket. And I just see like 300 people on the plane watching DirecTV or playing Candy Crush. I just think like, if you all don't want presidents like this for the rest of your life, you gotta get a little smarter. <laughs> Stop playing Candy Crush, read a book. <laughs> read a book. This guy's president, we got a Candy Crush brain for president because you all were playing Candy Crush all this time. Stop playing Candy Crush. So. We also make choices to educate ourselves and not just be on Netflix all the time that result in whether there is support for people being thinkers. Um, so think about that next time you want to play Candy Crush. <laughs> right here. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, it's really inspiring and welcome back to Cleveland. Thank you. As you were challenging these young people to start a movement, I was thinking about movements. And what I thought about was these kids from Parkland, Florida, mm -hmm. who lost a, a classmate and then organized that tremendous movement and that tremendous march and, wow, brought kids in from all over the country, different, representing different groups, and spoke, and it was tremendously moving. And they took on the NRA and these entrenched political groups, but I don't see a lot of change. I don't see assault rifles disappearing. I don't see background checks. I'd, I'd be interested in yeah. what you have to say about that and what that mm -hmm. says to what we need to do to get really effective yeah. movements. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a phenomenal example. And by the way, like a lot, of, a lot of what I'm talking about in this culture of people, you know, I often joke, although it's not a joke, that a lot of young people have been told a story that if you see a problem in the world, you step up and you start a cupcake company that gives back, <laughs> right? And we've miseducated a generation of young people to think that's the solution. But that's like 20 and 30 year olds now, right? Mm -hmm. What we saw in Parkland, this is like a generation that's like right. the next generation beyond that, that I think actually totally gets what I'm saying in my experience. Um, and what we saw in Parkland, one, it was a very privileged community where perhaps those kids just had a vocabulary for doing that and means of doing that that maybe every community doesn't have. But you're right, when they saw a problem, they didn't start cupcake companies. They immediately went political. And I love that, and they did it well. And they also did things that, I don't know how much you, know, you all know about this, but they went to other communities around this country, they went to Native American communities, and they listened and learned from them, and changed their messages, and like, talked about their blind spots. And like, I, I just met Cameron the other day in, uh, in LA, and I mean, just so impressive. Like they started, he said like, I'm a kid, I don't know anything. So we had to go on this journey because, you know. And so I love how political they got. They immediately thought of changing things with the system. Now, to your point about they haven't gotten background checks yet, I think we gotta see what happens in November. 
I think what they have done is probably tipped a bunch of elections, right? Which is actually how you make change. I mean, you, you're not going to pass the law you want immediately because that law has to then be passed okay. under the legislature that obtained previously. Um, but I, you know, I think they were important in the governor's race in Florida. I think they're probably going to be important in a bunch of races. I think they're going to be a bunch of races that are won by like 58 votes. And I think they will have, hopefully, um, influenced some of those. And I think that's, we shouldn't always just look for like getting that one bill passed now. Real change is very slow, and it involves getting the wrong people out and getting the right people in and then making the right people be better. I mean, someone was saying the other day, like Bernie did not win. Bernie probably won't win again. And Bernie has some limitations because of his age running on a very young kind of platform. There's a lot of complications with him personally. But someone made the point that virtually every Dem Democrat running in this cycle has adopted a lot of the policy proposals. Mm -hmm. Medicare for all has gone from being wacko to being you have to be for that to run in this primary. That's how influence works also. And so I think they're actually pursuing the kind of influence that changes things slowly in ways that sometimes you can't exactly trace but, but are very much there. And I would say they are an amazing model for you see something in the world, think of a solution that is public, institutional, democratic, and universal, not a cupcake company that gives back. The students exit, I'm gonna ask this question as someone who grew up, grew up in Europe how would you define the nature of the social contract in the United States? Because there is a cultural question here, but I'm wondering if there's also not an underlying philosophical question about what we think as Americans our obligations are to each other and what the role of our government should be and how this all works in our society. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great. great question. You know, there's this really amazing book that I read in high school. I think it's by Lewis Hartz, um, but I may be getting that wrong. And it, it was in some ways about the way he asked that question is why was there never a serious socialist movement in the US? And of course there were glimmers, but in basically most countries in Europe that are similar, there's been more of a, a left. And he basically made the, a very interesting point that if you look at European history, they were running away from two different things in their political culture. They were, sometimes in their history, the king was the threat, the big powerful, potentially tyrannical king who's going to come and get you. But at other times in their history, and a big part of their memory, they were also escaping feudalism, which is not about centralized authority. That's about rich and powerful people nearby oppressing you, not paying you your wages, whatever. And sometimes the king defended you against the feudal lords, and sometimes the feudal lords defended you against the king. And, and so... In Europe, his point was there's a sensitivity to being oppressed by a government and a sensitivity to being oppressed by the private sector, by rich people, by chaos, by you know, um, a lack of order and authority. Whereas in America, we don't have that feudal heritage in a way that we recognize. We have it as a matter of race, but we don't have the length of a feudal heritage that they have. And so we don't worry about being oppressed by the private sector. In, deep, deep in our, we don't, we don't realize that you can be oppressed by a powerful government, but you can also be oppressed by Goldman Sachs. And so in so much of our culture, we're just afraid of the king. We're still primordially afraid of the king. They're gonna get our guns, they're gonna get our taxes. We're always vigilant about government. 
We're just not vigilant about the fact that JP Morgan doing what it does can contribute to millions of people losing their homes and livelihoods. And that if you just look at recent American history, I would argue more of us have been oppressed by the private sector than the public sector. But all of our vigilance is like waiting for King George to come get us. Um, and I think that's where our political culture just needs to grow up. And we need to, particularly in the modern world, in this moment, government doesn't, is not really capable enough to oppress us. You know? Whereas a company like Facebook, if it makes bad decisions about privacy and surveillance, can affect everybody in this room's life with a couple clicks. The government wishes it had that power over you. It does not. You know? um, and so I think part of the work in, implied by your question is actually shifting our culture, which is in many ways my book's trying to do, to say we need to actually change what we're afraid of and what we're vigilant about and broaden it to understand all manner of threat to us living the good life. I tried to work in King George since I know Hamilton, Hamilton was here yeah. recently. Yeah. You'll be back. That's such a great song. <laughs> it was. Hey, thanks so much for coming. My name is Jonathan. Uh, I believe that everybody wants change, but nobody wants loss. And I'm wondering if you can tell us more around the loss that you think the elite need to experience for us to see change. That's a great, that's, that's at the heart of the book. Um, you know, the fantasy that I wish to pop is that you can change the world as an elite without your world changing. That you can change the world without conceding any power that you can change the world at the present unfair tax rate. Um, and so to be very practical for a second, the way rich people and large companies are taxed in this country right now is incompatible with justice. And so when you have people making $160 billion from Amazon, I don't view the number of billionaires we have and the number of their billions as a symbol of the health of this society. I view it in many ways as a measure of our failure. Because that $160 billion, don't let anybody confuse you, that's money that literally could have been paid instead as wages or as taxes. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. And you all know the consequences. Today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum with Anand Girdardas, uh, author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. He's in conversation with Telly Anjay Thomas, director of the Foundation Center Midwest. Our community partner for today's forum is Third Space Action Lab and Cafe. Our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We thank both of you for your partnership. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by the Fund for Economic Future and the George Gund Foundation. We also welcome students and movement builders from Chardon High School and the Cleveland School of Architecture and Design, as well as Flow Homeschool Co-op and Shaker Heights High School. Woo, yeah, woo. <laughs> Student participation in City Club forums is made possible by many foundations, including the William M. Weiss Foundation and AT&T. We thank all of you for being here today. The sale of... <laughs> 
The sale of the book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, is provided by a cultural exchange. That brings us to the end of our program today. Thank you very much, Mr. Girdardas, Mr. Thomas. Thank you all, ladies and gentlemen, for being a part of this. Have a wonderful day. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.